Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 177 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen. For this week's episode of the podcast, I was able to sit down and chat with none other than Mark Munch. Mark is an internationally renowned landscape photographer with 11 book titles to his name. Mark is a third generation landscape photographer following in the family tradition started by his grandfather uh, and his father David. Mark currently runs photography classes and workshops around the world with his company Munch Workshops. Mark and I discussed some very interesting topics this week, including how he got his start in landscape photography, how his relationship with his father influenced his photography, teaching photography and what he has learned as a result of teaching, creating his own legacy as a photographer, how Mark built his workshop brand and has maintained fidelity to that brand over the years, his new ebook titled The Art of Luminosity, and much more. Over on Patreon this week, Mark and I discuss his views on what characteristics good workshop students have and how he has seen students do amazing things. Okay, let's get to the show. Awesome. Well, Mark Munch, thank you so much for taking the time of your busy schedule to join us on the podcast. You're welcome. It's always fun to come and talk shop and photography. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, I would be remiss to not to mention that many, many, many former guests have recommended you to be on the show. So I'm happy we could finally make that happen. That's great. Yeah, it just took a world pandemic to occur. Here I am. <laughs> right. And, and you know, it's... Uh, August, who would have thought that we would still be in this situation? <laughs> oh, not me. I was hoping this thing would go, but you know, it's a darn virus. Yeah, what can you do? <laughs> well, apparently there's lots of things you can do, but people don't trust trust those things. But we, we digress. We digress. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Well, awesome, Mark. So, so for people that maybe aren't familiar with you and your work, which I find to be somewhat uh, unlikely, but tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, kind of what your journey into photography looked like. Sure. I'm uh, now a proud 53 years old. I have three children and they're all up and making money, thank God. <laughs> and I'm uh, living with my wife in Santa Barbara, California, which is where I was born. And from here, I travel on workshops around the world. So for the last 10, 12 years, I've been doing that. Um, Way back years ago, I did the photography school. I started here at a high school and did the actual yearbook photography. That probably was the most learning ever. And then I went off to uh, community college for a couple of years and then went to the Art Center College of Design in Pasadena, where uh. everybody was designing these amazing automobiles. Uh, we also had uh, a lot of fun with the photography. Of course, we were trying to, our portfolios had to be better than anybody from Brooks because they were from Santa Barbara too. So <laughs> that way we would get the jobs. But nice. nevertheless, we, I learned photography through school and believe it or not, I probably learned more about black and white processing, wet processing than anything else. <laughs> oh yeah, I bet. Yeah. I never wanted to do the color, so that I learned it, but didn't want to do it. Anyways, so you know, it's it's fun to know all that stuff, but uh, don't use the wet process anymore. So, yeah. Now, did your did your transition in photography go from black and white? Like, did you start with thirty five millimeter, or like, what did that transition all look like in terms of formats? Yeah, well, originally I would borrow a camera from my dad, which. Actually, I'm kind of embarrassed. Had to be happened to be a Leica, so it wasn't that bad of a camera. <laughs> and that was 35 millimeter, and I used that for a long time, all the way through, uh, you know, high school and then um, into college and stuff. And then, right before I went to Art Center, I started using a four by five, and I had no idea what the movements did, even though my father had been doing it all his life. Anyways, I learned pretty quick, and uh, then once I studied photography in large format, which was four by five and film, then that's what I became familiar with. So all the work I did once I left school was for clients who wanted the four by five transparencies, which was the, 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 the thing back then. 
Right. And so uh, I, though, loved doing sports photography. So I always loved snow skiing and outdoor adventures. So I would go off skiing with a smaller camera. I didn't carry the four by five for that. <laughs> Although I did set it up once, tried that, failed miserably. So, <laughs> so I started using medium format and 35 millimeter at about the time Canon came out with the autofocus in the lens rather than in the body. So that made my job a whole lot easier. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think you're fairly unique in terms of, um, at least compared to a lot of other people I talked to and how they got into photography and in that you count, you come from a, a, a line of photographers. In fact, on your website, uh, you kind of coin yourself as a third generation photographer, which I think is pretty awesome to be able to even say that. I Did you always know growing up that photography was going to be a part of your life for the rest of your life? Or is it something that you fought? Like, what did that look like? <laughs> yeah, I can't say there was a day where I had the aha moment. But <laughs> I I do remember when I would, when I was young, I don't know, six or 10 or something like that, I would, people would ask me or what am I going to do with my life? as adults love to do <laughs> right. with their kids that way. So unfair. It's not fair. And I would say something about photography probably because I remember a couple of them saying, well, photography, well, you're not going to make any money. <laughs> <laughs> I, that answer I remember. <laughs> but eventually, as time went on, I realized that as I was traveling, going to pretty amazing places actually throughout the states, the western states, that's where we would typically go, I began to fall in love with these places. And, you know, you're a teenager and you don't really think of it that way. But as time goes by, you, you begin realizing it, that you miss those times and those places. And so as that began changing me, I began realizing that I had to do something outside. So mm. that was probably a slow transition, but eventually I got there. And then when I decided to apply for Pestina Art Center, I you know, you had back then you actually had to make a portfolio and you have to submit it and try and get accepted. It wasn't easy then to get in. So anyways, that was kind of the transition to get to the point where I wanted to do photography. My dad, you know, he did not force it on me at all, other than the fact that I was around him a lot when we would travel and that's what sure. he did. So I, I just watched him even though I didn't want to sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, I was, I was curious, you know, spending a lot of time with your dad, you know, I, it's something that I kind of wish I could pass on to my son. He, he absolutely has not taken any interest in photography at all. And I try to take him on as many trips as possible. And every time I try to show him something, he's like, oh, okay, what do you know? He kind of rolls his eyes. Doesn't, he does not really into it, but, uh, you know, do, do you, do you kind of hindsight being 2020, do you feel like, uh, that experience growing up with your dad who was doing photography so prolifically, did that have a significant influence on on your work as it is today? Well, I don't know what came first, either the understanding that he was doing well and you know, he was he was doing really well in the seventies and eighties and even through right. the nineties when I was working for him. So financially that picture made a whole lot of sense for me to pursue uh -huh. because he couldn't keep up with the demand. So just on that level alone, it influenced me to go into photography. Um, and that's, you know, different than the philosoph philosophical reasons for going into photography. But as I said earlier, it was really a part of the combination of that I could enjoy going outside and capturing images, making images, and then end up making some good money if I did everything right. I just had to keep up with really the quality of what my dad was doing. So that was always the the catch. Okay, I got to do something right. So, <laughs> Right. Yeah, it's um, one of the things I was going to ask you about in relation to your time at the Arts Institute. But now I'm thinking probably the, the learning happened with your dad in terms of the business side of photography, because I feel like a lot of photographers – produce absolutely stunning work, but have absolutely no idea how to monetize their, their passion and their photography. And I'm curious, you know, 
do you attribute your your success currently with kind of growing up in that world and or did you pick up anything in your educational endeavors <laughs> yeah that you know unfortunately at art center and i don't know about brooks but i know other institutions that were similar there's so much there was so much to teach just in the craft of photography it was really a trade and at that time in the late 80s and early 90s, it, it was a trade. And so most people went off and they became a tradesman. That's how photography was per- perceived. And even today, it's very difficult for people in the art community to understand that photography is an art. So it's it's going through this transition and now it's becoming accepted. But back then, it was pretty much, you know, if if, if you could get good work, from a good client or a ad agency, that was terrific. And and you, as the photographer, even though you're the chief photographer or the lead photographer, you were always at the bottom of the pole because above you is the art director, the corporate <laughs> art director, then the comp, then the uh, you know the CEO of the ad agency, and then finally the client. So there was a lot of people above you. So. You know, it's always had that mystique about it. And now, to be honest, some of these jobs that people are getting, I haven't done a commercial shoot in 15 years, but some of these jobs now, they look at the photographer as something other than the photographer. They're kind of this uh, arrangement of creative director, art director, photographer, you know, guru, which is kind of cool. It is kind of cool. It also tells me that in order to find success in that arena as a photographer, you have to be better than just a good photographer. (laughs) Yeah, you do. You have to, you know, I know from a lot of my work, I did the job that was asked of me and then you have to get something else done because either you didn't like it. You thought the art director was smoking the wrong (laughs) weed, but then you had to create something else that you liked better. And sometimes the client picked those. So if you're thinking along those lines, great. It'll right. <laughs> right. Well, so a big portion of um, kind of how you're uh, making your living now as a photographer is through teaching. At least it seems that it seems that way based on your online presence and and constantly me seeing uh, Munch workshops uh, being advertised and whatnot. I'm assuming that's going fairly well, even with COVID withstanding. <laughs> yeah, um, it's it's tough, but yes. Yeah. So in teaching photography, I'm, you know, one of the things I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about is uh, what have you learned through the process of teaching other people photography? But teaching is, uh, is a great learning part of my life because I love showing people what I do. And in most of the ways, that's good enough for teaching. And as I go through the process of learning how to actually teach, it really is more about being efficient and making these assimilations. So, you know, aperture, how do you explain aperture and how do you explain shutter speed and ISO? And you come up with these little, uh, little jingles so that people remember them and, you know, F8 is great, that kind of thing. And so <laughs> all that, right. stuff, you know, cause you're, when you're out learning, especially in the field, you're a lot of people are learning about the place they're in and then they have to learn about photography and then at night, sometimes they're learning about post-processing. So there's a lot. Their heads are swimming. And and so you're trying to make this stuff stick. And it's a limited amount of time that we have as photography instructors. So, you know, of course, you want to get everything as concise as possible. And that's really the hardest part, making it efficient and concise, which is always a struggle for me, even though... I want to go ramble off on some philosophical issue. It's not a good use of time sometimes, <laughs> at least when you're teaching something important. Yeah, what, what I found challenging about teaching is that typically there's going to be a fairly wide variety of skill level and experience level in the room. And so it's hard to make it not too complicated to where the newer photographers that don't have any idea what you're talking about, but not making it too boring so that the experienced people are falling asleep. <laughs> yes, that's very true. That's always, it's easier done with post-processing because you can 
you know, show some little trick that's over most people's heads. And then the advanced folks wake up and go, oh, that's cool. And that keeps them going for at least a half an hour. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so through teaching all these years, I'm curious, what else do you feel like you need to learn in photography that you maybe have realized as a byproduct of teaching? Oh, good question. I, I think that what we are able to do with our work is the philosophical question. And, you know, ideally we do something that changes the way people perceive things and for the better. So if, and this is one of the reasons I think it's good to talk about a body of work and how that when you start creating something, most of the time we're creating something for instant pleasure. And by instant, I mean for that image, make that image look as good as it can be and composed in light and then post-processed. And, and that's the piece that we're working on. But what I am struggling with and what I will keep struggling with is to make that bigger picture where it's not just one image, it's a series of work and it's a philosophy that I'm trying to get across in my work. Um, it came from years ago back at Art Center, actually, and hearing some of the better professors talk about the way that they understood photography and the way they dealt with photography. And to me, that gave it that extra step, that extra elevated feeling of not just uh, importance, but credibility. Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny you mentioned that because it's something that I've been putting a lot of thought into the last Oh, probably nine months now. I've I've really been that that question keeps kind of nagging me. Like, what you know, you're making decent photographs, but what's like, what's the point? Because I feel like if you don't find that larger purpose or create a body of work that is kind of bigger than the sum of its parts, uh, it's it almost feels like I don't know. It can kind of get boring or or re redundant. In some ways, I don't know if you sure. found that at all. Like, it's like, okay, I know how to take a good photo, but what now? <laughs> you know? Oh, I can tell you, it's when when we were doing well in what was called the stock photography business, the simplest of pictures, like the Windows screensaver desktop right. file, right? Just a green field with green and blue sky and a couple clouds. That's what sold. And so the simpler it was, the better it sold. And and this is another side story, but when people would call and ask for that picture, you should have heard all the adjectives lined up together. It'd take about a half an hour for these art directors to get done with their spiel. And then <laughs> what they would pick was that simple little field of flowers. So it's pretty ironic what people end up with. And those types of images were actually, they are still today, very easy to capture. Not always as good as the other, but nevertheless... The, the concept can be repeated and repeated and repeated. And yes, it does get kind of boring. And I remember thinking back, it's kind of when we went from film to digital that I started seeing new work come from other photographers in the landscape world. And it was exciting and it was new. And I think a lot of it had to do with post-processing. Mm -hmm. So that took it from where I was kind of in a boring, stagnant place to somewhere new. So that was really a good transition. And, and now I think, you know, how you, how you find that transition out of what you're good at is one of the things that an artist has to do because they shouldn't always repeat themselves over and over. So what, what kind of directions are you trying to push your photography now in terms of creating collections or, or something larger than the single image? Yeah, there's a there's a couple concepts that have I've used for years and years that have kind of guided me through what I think is the best work I've done, even though it might not be anything anybody's seen, but <laughs> <laughs> it's what I like. And it's the concept of freedom, okay. which is difficult to portray in a picture, especially a landscape picture. But that's always floating around in the back of my head. That's something I want to portray. You just and need then, a bald eagle and an American flag. Come on, Mark. <laughs> exactly. I know. It's really simple, right? I should know this by now. No, <laughs> oh, just, <I'm> just kidding. <laughs> no, that's perfect. Yeah, there is an easier way to do this. Ding dong. <laughs> but the, the other 
ideas that come up are, are really have to do with that wild wilderness. And it's one thing to show a wild place and with dramatic light, but to really make it look wild, I only have a couple pictures that I think I've been able to do that in. And so it's, it's kind of that those two things keep coming along in the back of my head when I'm creating images. And, you know, I have to fill these in in places when I'm on workshops and teaching. And then all of a sudden, I literally, I'll be standing there talking to somebody and I'll turn around and there it is. So it's, it's not always something that I can articulate and say what it is. It's just a magical mix of, of different items that come together. Mm. You, you just answered my next question because I was going to ask you if you've figured out what types of elements in a scene kind of uh, evoke those uh, realizations for you. It sounds like it just is or isn't. <laughs> I'd say gold, crystal, and platinum. <laughs> those two elements. <laughs> that make a lot of money. Oh no, make a good picture. Um, I think it's, yeah, you know, there's always this talk about subject light and composition and what's the most important. So I go back to the basics of photography to answer this, which is really the subject. And you can pretty much dress that subject up into great light and composition. But if you don't have that subject, it's not going to be compelling. So that's kind of along with the what I'm talking about in this subject could be a concept that you're thinking of and how you're trying to portray that that concept is even the subject sometimes. But honestly, I think that we, you know, just like when we our eyes go to eyes in a picture, right? When we see this people magazine and and first thing you look at, it's not always the greatest contrast, it's the eyeballs. And who knows, there might be some other shapes that we're attracted to as well. But nevertheless, those eyeballs get our attention. And with that concept in mind, you have to kind of break down the physical elements in your picture and find out what it is that's going to be that compelling subject. Hmm. Yeah, it's funny. Probably six or so years ago, I finally had the aha moment where I, I would look at a scene and I would remember to ask myself, what is the subject of this scene? And that would help me, you know, help me compose it, direct, you know, compositional elements to think about, you know, how to emphasize that subject. And then I think in the last couple of years, I've had like another aha moment that's like on top of that. It's like, no, like what is the actual subject? Because I think we often get, uh, as landscape photographers, we, also, we often get stuck in this idea that the literal object is the subject. And I think true art, sometimes I feel like you kind of need to transcend that. And the subject is no longer an object, but a theme or a, an emotion or something more than the object you're photographing. I totally agree. Yes, that's exactly what should be filling your head. And and it, it always doesn't when you're out. Sometimes you just want to find some good light. I was going to say. Thought, find some good light, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it like um as much as I keep telling myself these things, I find when I'm in the field it becomes really difficult to I don't remember that. It's like, oh right, there's more than just the object that I'm trying to make a photograph of here. What is that? And I think sometimes that comes through when you're post-processing or uh maybe after the fact when you're looking at the image because I get into these states of mind. I don't know about you, where you're just making images that feel right. And then you don't even know what you're taking pictures of. And then you look back and you're like, oh, that looks pretty good. <laughs> but yeah, it's um, it's hard to kind of have those, I don't know, those intellectual conversations with yourself in the field, I think. <laughs> yeah. Or they get too long and you get bored of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. You have to get to the point. And you know, it's, I, I think what you're saying is right. And when you, when you, before you go out into the field, we all go out for different reasons. I think the majority of people go out into the field because there's a combination of adventure, of excitement and capturing the image is really not just the trophy, but it's, it's the jewel at the top. And, and those are kind of the driving forces in what we do. And a lot of people do, but if, you're an artist and you're trying to create a theme of work or a 
project, then that will be your driving force. Then it'll mm-hmm. dictate where you go, when you go, what camera you use. Absolutely every aspect of photography will be answered if you start off with answering the first one. And mm-hmm. and that's the part that, you know, it'd be great to get the grant to photograph, uh, you know, the Northern Peninsula in Norway for a year. <laughs> <laughs> Why right. not? It'd be so fun. But it's that kind of focus that once – once somebody has, oh, it's just amazing what can be done. Mm. Yeah, and it, I like what you said because it does kind of change your mindset when you have something larger in mind in terms of what you're trying to photograph for because it keeps it prevents you from getting distracted by images that might still be really good, but they don't necessarily fit within – a theme or a subject or a topic that you're trying to emphasize through, through your work. Sure. Exactly. Uh, but it's hard to do, right? <laughs> I yeah, don't know. I get even. distracted. I'm like, Ooh, shiny lights. I'm going to go take a picture of that. Wait, no, you need to focus on this over here. <laughs> yeah. The biggest problem is like the Northern lights. They always get in the way. Great. Oh, right. Well, that's, not a, that's not a bad problem. That. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, well, so I'm curious, you know, having spent a lot of time shooting um, 35 millimeter medium format and a little bit of large format, are there s- techniques and practices and approaches that you learned through those uh, formats of photography that you still use today that might, maybe some people might maybe haven't thought of? Or Yeah, it's a good, good question. I think that if it's not just a practical application of the camera itself, it's more the look and feel. As I look back on a collection of work that I had from film and compare it to what I've done in the last 10, 15 years, that's where I see the biggest difference. And I know that one of the struggles in digital photography and imaging has always been the noise. Is the image sharp and does it have noise? And what I've seen come out of that is uh, plethora of overly clean and pure imagery Hmm. and it's as if there's no noise and it's the colors are perfect and vibrant and so it kind of lacks a a feel other than that particular vibrant colors and clean with no noise so it's this variety of work that film generated and there were different emulsions that created different looks and we couldn't change it as much as we wanted So that created this unusual feel and look that was very important, I think, in a person's work. And now, you know, I'm speaking from myself personally, I have to go way out of my way to process it in almost what I think is something that's not as good looking to make it look different and unique. And it's hard to do that. So to create something that's a unique process to make your images look a certain way is difficult to do because it's not probably it's probably not going to be the most beautiful way that image can be portrayed. Mm. So that's probably the biggest difference. Um, technically, what I would say is while I used the different formats, there was this overwhelming sensation of resolution. And the bigger the transparency, the greater the sale. Honestly, it was that important. Our images, we'd send them FedEx to art directors around the country and world, and they would get them and put them on a light table and then look at them and sort through them. And they would be sitting those four by fives right next to a 35 millimeter or medium format a lot of times. So it had this advantage of resolution and color. And so that portrayed into the work I do today. So I've used the Hasselblad, worked with Hasselblad and Now Fuji, I started using the Fuji medium format camera, GFX 100, Mm -hmm. just because of the resolution, not so much because there were such better colors or detail or anything like that. So, you know, it's, it's always been a struggle to have that kind of resolution with the action of fast autofocus and fast uh, reactions in the camera. Right. It's getting better. It is. <laughs> yeah, I, I recently um, went from the Sony A7R2 to the 4, which is what, like 42 to 60 or whatever. And 
that was, I actually found some of my work felt a little less good because of it. I think, you know, the jump in pixels sometimes can bring out some of the flaws in your workflow. (laughs) Yeah. Don't look too close, Matt. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like, wow, that's definitely not nearly as sharp as I thought it would be. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that happens. Yeah. 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 I think the whole camera, uh, the higher resolution, of course, is, is probably, we've reached it. I don't know that many people that are trying striving to get more resolution. No, it's, I don't think so me, either. It, for me, it's kind of this, this uh, impact that it had in the beginning that I'm still trying to achieve. And so far, to be absolutely honest, the very best file I've ever seen from any digital camera was the Hasselblad 100 megapixel. So that file, you know, I'm maybe Leaf has one that's similar. I haven't been able to compare those, but nevertheless, the colors, the resolution, the sharpness, and all that jazz. And if you can produce that in a great camera, then that'll be the next step. But I think that set aside, I think we've got the resolution we need. Canon, Nikon, Fuji, Sony, everybody's creating these amazing cameras. So we really don't have an excuse. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest, you can make very large prints out of even a 16 megapixel crop frame camera nowadays if you're careful with the files and process it well. You use a phone much? (laughs) Right. I mean, it's kind of the same idea, right? I mean, Apple phones, same thing. I I don't. I mean, it's, um, I have a, I still have an iPhone 7. So, you know, it's a little older, but but yeah, you can make some pretty amazing stuff with just an iPhone. Right. Yeah, I know. It's uh, becoming more prevalent. And I know, you know, there's, of course, some very important aspects that are not available in a phone, but <laughs> there's ways to get around a lot of them. And I think the phone is a great tool. I use it for teaching often to get somebody to think about what they're shooting. And a lot of times, you know, the first thing somebody does when they walk out to a scene is they set up a tripod. Right. And they've just planted themselves in probably the worst possible place. And then typically it's at head high. So it's really a great tool to get people out of that mode and into moving and motion until you find the right shot. And right. sending somebody out to take a bunch of pictures with the phone is a great way to go. Great way to yeah. learn. See. Yeah. And what I like about the, um, I'm not sure if, the, the later iPhones is the same, but I'm pretty sure it is. But I have the iPhone 7S, which has the two cameras, two different focal lengths. And it's more or less equivalent to 24 millimeters and 50 millimeters. So it's mm. so like you can test different uh, different focal lengths as well, just right on the camera and kind of yeah. see what the scene will look like. <laughs> yeah. Which is no, pretty cool. It's, it's very cool. Ours, I have the, the newer one that has the three cameras. Three, oh, lengths, yeah. I could say, yeah, the, and, and the, the wide, thirteen or whatever. <laughs> yeah, the wide is just uber wide, which is fun. You know, it can do some nice distortion if you want it to. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, so the other big topic I wanted to touch on with you, if you're up for it, uh, is I, w- I was hoping if you talk a little bit about what your approach has been throughout your life to kind of carve out your own photographic style and career, having followed in the footsteps of your legendary father, because obviously he was a prolific photographer, had his amazing body of work, and you too also have an amazing body of work and have kind of taken your career in its own trajectory. So I was curious, what was your approach to kind of kind of separating yourself a little bit fr- from him um, to kind of make yourself stand out in a different way. Right. Uh, I think it was snow skiing. I started finding the adventure in life by downhill snow skiing and going out on backpacking trips. And so eventually it became cross country or, um, mountaineering, ski mountaineering. So we would go out on these adventures and that's where I had the best time. And so through those experiences, I was creating pictures of my friends hiking and climbing and skiing and all that. And when I first started applying to some of the stock agencies right out of school, those are the pictures they picked and right. started marketing and licensing. 
right away. So it was something different than what my father had done. And at that time, there really weren't a whole lot of photographers doing this. And so, you know, back then it was very restrictive based on if you had a channel to the publishing world. And because I did have that channel, my father had been in it his whole life and my grandfather had been there, that I had this clear street right to the publishers, which was through the agencies and we had magazines calling us. So as long as I supplied them with something they wanted, I had that access. So I can never forget that because that was a great moment was being able to show the art director at National Geographic some of my images. And I was only out of school for a year or two. So, But what it was, was this combination of somebody out in the wilderness and not just for perspective, but just for the whole concept of having that wild freedom to go out and do some pretty amazing things. Yeah, and obviously you've figured out some formulas to success on the business side of things in terms of creating your workshop empire, as I like, I like to call it. <laughs> <laughs> the empire. Yeah, right. Well, Emperor Munch. <laughs> well, I've had some great friends who have became, become business partners, Andy Williams and David Rosenthal. And honestly, the three of us together have made it successful sure. because, you know, we have uh, Andy's family comes from a world of business who his father used to run IBM. Oh, wow. David, David Rosenthal, he uh, used to cut movie trailers in Hollywood. So he would create the movie trailer that would sell all these movies and for a lot of the big studios. So he was in there doing that all day long. I don't know how he sits so long, but the guy, <laughs> so he's doing a great job cutting and editing and brings that skill and that knowledge into the, the world of photography. And so, and I'm kind of the artistic version of uh, the group and I bring in the world of photography. So the combination of the three of us have really worked well together to create our empire. And from our real love of photography, it, uh, it grew into what it is today. And a lot of that was just word of mouth. Hey, you want to go here? Sure. Let's go. Here's the tuition, sign it and go. And then after filling classes for three or four years, we started in 2007. And then after filling a couple classes for two or three years, then, uh, we got a little more serious because we realized it was working and added 10 classes one year. And, you know, it was a lot of work to fill them because some were, shoot, we went to Africa and it was a lot of money, (laughs) (laughs) but we had the greatest trip ever. And the people that went on that trip still keep coming back. So, you know, each trip, we just kept upping the ante and making it more exciting, more better and teaching them as much as we could. So all that combined together has, has made us uh, what we're doing now. And since then, we've hired some great staff. In other words, uh, photographers who lead and teach besides us. So, you know, Randy Hanna, Kevin Pepper, Lisa LaPointe, Michael Strickland, and Greg Vaughn, and Wayne Suggs, and, you know, to name a few, and Richard Burnaby. We've got these people that have a wealth of information and, and their background that they bring to the table when they teach. So it's, it's been a lot of fun seeing all this happen and blossom. Yeah. One of the things that I was really curious about, you know, looking at your diverse list of instructors and knowing that the name of your company is your last name, which, you know, you kind of have a, a brand that you're trying to uphold, I'm assuming to some degree. How do you, how do you ensure the fidelity to that brand and how you teach photography with the variety of instructors that you bring on board? Yeah, good, great question. So we always have, if if somebody hasn't taught workshops before or doesn't have a history of workshops, then we have to have them come on many trips before they start leading their own trip. So during that sort of uh, uh, period of time, we're teaching them how we would lead and then they learn by osmosis. Uh-huh. <laughs> and absorbing and realizing what needs to be done. We have, before each workshop, we have weeks and weeks and weeks of pre-production. So that means we go down the logistics of what's happening for sunrise, before you get up for sunrise, sunrise, breakfast, how long the drive is, do the cars have fuel and uh, how, how long is it back to the restaurant? Can somebody call ahead or whatever it takes? And we go through all those steps so that they're all well-prepared. Because 
it's a lot of logistics, really. Yeah, and right. You get those logistics right and spend enough time on them. You have a plan B in case, well, not a world pandemic, but if something happens <laughs> and, you know, sometimes there might be another group at the spot you're trying to go. And so that happens in this amazing world. Then you have to go down the road to something else and uh, things like that that come up. So it's a whole thing, a whole logistical nightmare that we need to smooth out. And they start learning how to do that. And we really find these people that are enthusiastic about their photography. Mm -hmm. And if if they are, then that's a perfect combination because they're going to share what they love. And then they have the logistics to get it done. And that's, those are the two keys. Yeah. So it sounds like you meet a lot of your instructors because they are also have been students at your workshops. Um, is that, am I hearing right, you? A couple, to be honest. Yeah. In fact, uh, a lady named Savani Babu has been on some uh, bunch of workshops and then we've asked her to help lead a couple of them with Wayne Suggs, who is actually a student on one of my classes at Santa Fe workshops years ago. And when Wayne and I met, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun, enjoyed our company and I just stayed in touch with him. And eventually he was able to spend more time in photography. And I said, Hey, why don't you think about leading a couple trips? And, uh, and then one thing led to the next, uh, we've had other people that come and help us in the same way. Uh, Michael Strickland, he was working up at really right stuff right? and said he wanted to come you know, see if there was any work we had. And so I had a beer with him. He started joining me with, uh, do a couple Lightroom classes. I realized he was really good at what he did or does. And he had a whole different vibe to him because he was working in film. So it was a lot of fun to have his input and his encouragement from a whole different world than digital, uh, even though he knows digital. Um, So we just find people that are interested. Some of them seek us. We seek some of them. So it's big difference. Yeah. In addition to the, uh, the qualities you've already mentioned in terms of, you know, you said enthusiasm and, and logistics, and it sounds like they have to be good at following instructions. <laughs> what, uh, what other qualities do you look for when you are recruiting instructors to work for you? Well, you know, I don't know that there's been a recruitment of You know, we find people, we hear their names, and then we talk to them. And in those conversations, it's probably a series of conversations. And we have to make sure that they have the skills or the chops to do all these different things. And a a lot of it's just dotting the I's and crossing the T's. You've got to be able to do that to get out in the field. When things don't go right, you have to have everything in order. Otherwise, you'll lose it. And, you know, because sometimes you're in a place where you're not going to have help. Maybe there's no Wi-Fi. Maybe you're, you're, you have to use a sap phone to get medical help. Whatever happens, you've got to have a plan for it. And all those things are priorities, first of all. And then assuming that the person has good work and they're enthusiastic about teaching it, that's the key. So if, if they have those three traits, then they're pretty high on the list. Nice. Cool. Yeah, that the whole uh, logistics and, you know, the what if scenarios are the things that keep me up at night in terms of teaching workshops. I know I was a I was actually teaching a workshop with a friend of mine at out of uh, Yosemite back in February. And one of our students, we were leading a hike up to Upper Yosemite Falls. And one of our students, he was having a really hard time physically getting up the trail. I think he just, you know, didn't necessarily know what he was getting into for that day. And so we kind of had to make a decision on the fly, like split the group up. I'll continue up the trail while he makes sure that that guy gets back down safely. So, but it's one of those things like you didn't, we didn't pre-plan that. We just on the fly just had to make a decision that made the most sense. Well, it's, it's very important. It's yeah. It's one of the reasons we have eight guests typically to two instructors. And that changes depending on the trip. So if I'm going in particular, we go to Canada and do some great trips up there and we have a local who works with us. He's also a photographer and he's more of a guide though. He knows photography, he teaches it, but you know, he has an expertise in the local areas where we hike and 
that knowledge is what we look for as well. So some of our guys, uh, some of our people are from different regions in the world. So we have a guy in New Zealand, Neil Prothero, who works there and owns a B&B and leads our trips there along with one of us. And then we work with a guy named Scarpy Trainston, who's in Iceland. And we have a bunch of different drivers and guides in Africa. And we have uh, Cody Duncan, which is kind of funny. He, Cody works in, lives in Norway right now in Lofoten. And Cody climbs every damn mountain in Norway, I think. But he is from Santa Barbara. And his father is Seymour Duncan, who created the famous bridge on the electric guitar. Um, and so Cody just took off and did his own life over there in Norway. And he's got more knowledge of Norway than most of the locals. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, that's been him, so valuable to us. Had him on on episode 81. Oh, if very to, cool. If anyone wants to go listen to Cody talk about Norway. But yeah, that's cool. Yeah, the local expertise seems like that would be really important. And I know even as someone who's you know somewhat expert in the area I'm in, I know that there's other things you got to think about when leading a workshop like, oh, I don't know, making sure the road is still open that used to be open maybe isn't now those kind of things that people might not think about so i think you know those are the little details that i think separate a okay workshop from a, a well-planned workshop sure yeah if it's actually been scouted the day before uh we you know we have some horrific examples of things that we did wrong years ago but sure we'll try and learn as you go sometimes <laughs> Well, yeah. yeah, especially if you get off the main track and you're going down the, a different road than you had planned. Um, <laughs> so, Minor detail. Driving in Scotland, that's always fun. And for years we thought, oh, yeah, we could do the driving. And we did in Scotland the first couple of times. And then we realized uh, life is too short. We're, we are not going to do that driving on the wrong side of the road on the wrong side of the car again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think I would be able to do that very well myself. <laughs> Yeah. Do you have particular success stories of people that have been through your workshops that kind of always bring a smile to your face? I mean, obviously, I don't want you to like ostracize some of your students or anything like that. But, you know, are there particular stories that kind of always make you, you know, think fondly about a certain student? Oh, certainly. I, you know, we've had... I'll, I'll tell you a story about a, a woman who uh, it's a little bit sad, but you know, she was such an amazing person. I love to bring her up. Um, she started on some of our first workshops and she was a physician from Italy from originally from England. And she was well-educated and had a difficult time in the outdoors, but did the trips with us because she wanted that kind of skill, that kind of knowledge. And one of the best <laughs> moments was when I would hear her calling from across the field, Mark, Mark, I can't do something, whatever it was. And I would go running over and I would reach around and pull off her lens cap. So <laughs> that was the beginning of it. But she created this amazing book of moonrises and moonsets from her room as she was literally dying of a tumor. Oh, wow. And so, you know, it even gives me chills to this day to think about it because she knew she had a vision and she had to fulfill it. And she had this great focus in creating that book. And it's just an outstanding collection of these moonrises and sets over the course of about probably eight months, almost a year. And so, you know, projects like that really mean something. And she sent us a book when, uh, before she passed away, mm. we've had people that, uh, you know, one of the first, um, a friend of mine who used to work with us would wake up the group early in, in Yosemite and he got a group up pretty darn early and they were all ready to go to breakfast. And he said, Nope, we're, we're going up to, uh, up to tunnel view and everybody complained and bitched and moaned. And anyways, they got to tunnel view and then poof, the fog lifted. There was new snow on everything. And it was, it was epic light as epic as you can imagine. And one of the guys on the trip lined up and knew the Ansel Adams frame and took the shot 
And since then, he's been on the cover of magazine. That picture has been on the cover of magazines and won contests, and he's done really well on that. And uh, he's a, a good friend of ours. We call him Commander because he was the uh, – Bill Toady is his name. He was the former commander of a nuclear submarine. Oh, cool. <laughs> so, that, that must be one of the coolest parts about teaching workshops over the years is that you get to meet such a diverse group of people that – I, if I had to guess, they probably um, enrich your experience just as much as you enrich theirs. A hundred percent, hundred and fifty percent, yes. And and when they come back on trips, it you get to know them a little differently and better. And some people have been back on you know five, ten, fifteen trips, and and it's not you know that we can teach them as much as we did in the first few trips. It's just that they pick something up on the fifth trip or sixth trip, and that depends on how they feel, how we're teaching, and and they get enough out of it to keep coming back because, you know, we're learning about how to teach this stuff, and we don't always give the right tip at the right time. I want to say I do, but I don't. <laughs> and so when when they need to hear something and when they absorb it is is always a different time, and so as these people learn to be more comfortable with us, they start sharing with us what their inhibitions are or what restricts them from doing what they want to do. And pretty soon you can start giving them real good advice about making photography a certain way. Once mm. you start understanding them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's, um, that's one of the funnest parts about teaching is just getting to know people and, and trying to figure out the best way to provide them with value as an instructor. It's, it was funny. That was one of the aha moments I had the last time I taught was, you know, five different students at the same location. I can probably offer all five of them something, but it's probably not going to be the same thing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. You yeah. can't, can't pull the, uh, sorry, Adams, but the Ansel Adams anymore and get up in front of 60 people and tell them your aperture. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm sure he said. Way. I'm sure he said more than that. I'm only kidding. Hope he doesn't roll in his grave. But honestly, I think nowadays, with the way photography has evolved, there's so much to it that you really have to pick a good time to try and say the right thing, in, in the hopes of getting somebody propelled to the next step. Yeah. Awesome. Well, speaking of teaching, I would love to hear about. Um, your online teaching offerings, and I understand you also have a, a new ebook. Yeah, yeah. The Art of Luminosity is a book I just created, and you can find it on our page if you go and go to muchworkshops.com and to the resources page. You'll be able to and or log into our, um, our our newsletter. We'll send it to you, and you can also request it on our page as well. So send us an email or sign up for our newsletter and you'll get it one way or the other. What kind I, of stuff do you cover in the book? I get it. I, I got into the topic because it wasn't just to create a series of books, even though it might end up being that in the end. Um, my first one was really about composition. And this is really more about the light. And the part about light that is so difficult to grasp is that there's reflective light and, and then there's direct light and how we perceive light that's being reflected versus direct light changes the way the image is created and the luminance it has. So I break it down into the steps that I think somebody should know because that's lessons I learned throughout school and throughout the digital process to make somebody's image and make their understanding of luminosity a little better. So all the steps of how a a density number is broken down into three numbers for the different colors in each pixel and what that means and why it affects your images. Those are the things that made the best imprint on me when I was learning how to print. And by the way, I'd learned how to print after way after art center because the printing process changed and I had to learn how to scan my father's transparencies, which we then archived for the University of Arizona, which is where they're housed for, uh, they sit there alongside Ansel Adams' collection. And so we had to make the best scans of them possible. And then we used those for commercial work, the scans and the scanner for commercial work as well. And that whole process took 
you know, everything I had to figure out over the course of a decade to perfect scanning. And all that information is what I had before I went into buying a digital camera, which really helped me understand luminosity and what you need to know even before, or if you could know it before you get a digital camera, great. But even after you get a digital camera, these are the things that will help you understand. Yeah. Awesome. And what about the, uh, the online teaching that you're doing? So we're offering some new classes that we're going to put online and it's spurred on by the pandemic because a lot of us aren't able to travel and we're home and we're going to start producing these because we have a lot of knowledge from all of us, you know, our combination of skills from our instructors to uh, the places they've been and the post-processing skills they have and the technical information they have about the cameras and the methods and the types of photography they do. All that stuff is what we're going to put into these lessons. So we're at the stage now where we're just starting and we're putting together the first class, which will be on Lightroom. And then we'll take it into advanced and advanced Lightroom and Photoshop. And then we'll go out and do field work so that we get a lot of the technical aspects conveyed and and are taught in these lessons. So we got a lot of work ahead of us, but we're excited about it and we'll be offering those in the coming months. That's awesome. Yeah. It sounds like it's good to have a, a good team of people to have a broad, broad areas of expertise so that you can offer different types of classes. Oh, absolutely. Yep. We've got great uh, wildlife photographer, you know, Randy Hanna, he loves Africa. And when he goes to Africa, he photographs portraits of these amazing um, tribes up in Ethiopia, just very fun, interesting work. And, and we've got Lisa LaPointe who loves her biology and photographs the birds and the whales and knows more about what's on a whale's tooth than um, <laughs> I could ever get to know. <laughs> so we've got a lot of diversity and it's a lot of fun um, you know, with working with the people we have. Yeah. Well, who would you recommend that we try to get here on the podcast? It sounds like you've already mentioned a couple of people, but uh, yeah, I would love to hear who you think would be an interesting conversation. Sure. I think, you know, mentioning Lisa LaPointe again would be great if you talk to her. She's got a wealth of knowledge in biology and photography. So she's a lot of fun to talk about, talk with, I'm sorry. And Kevin Pepper, he loves wildlife photography. He's up in Canada. He's another one of our photographers who would be a thrill to talk with. And he's has a history of teaching workshops. So he's got a lot of fun stories. And he was instrumental in getting us to Mongolia, which is, uh, I just visited Mongolia on one of our workshops with him last year. And I can't tell you what an amazing country and times we had. So Kevin would be a lot of fun. I'm also going to throw out there a couple names of uh, some of our students or guests. And these two people are very into photography, in fact, uh, inspiring in that sense. And it's Ella and Knapp Hudson. And I'll send you their link. But essentially, Knapp used to work in produce, help produce uh, photographic fine art paper. So he's got a history there of creating these amazing papers. And then the two of them work at a camera club up in Maine, which is a phenomenal club. I've lectured there and they have so many great photographers and they do an amazing show every year that's judged by somebody. And their variety of work that they produce is what's outstanding. And Ella will, you know, if you, if you end up having her on, she'll give you an idea of all the different types of paper she's experimented printing on and different ah, so methods. Cool. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just a relief. It's a lot of fun. So I would recommend them too. Awesome. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to, someone give me like 10 grand, I'll buy a printer and a bunch of paper. I would love to just play around with different print <laughs> mediums. <laughs> yeah, as long as they give you the ink. Go yeah, yeah, it. exactly. For sure, for sure. I need the ink too, definitely. <laughs> oh, man. Well, Mark, this has been a lot of fun, man. I really uh, had a great time learning about your history and, and all of your knowledge. And I just really appreciate you uh, being able to come share it with us. Oh, you're welcome. Yes, I, I enjoy talking about it. And uh, it's a lot of fun, Matt. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. 
All right. Well, thanks to Mark for coming on to the podcast this week and, sh- and for sharing his amazing story and wisdom with us. I would like to take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters. We have some absolutely awesome fans of the show, and I love to hear from you. Thanks to our newest patron, Sanjeev Modi, for supporting us. I really appreciate you. All right, well, let's chat about what we have coming up. It's a very awesome schedule we have coming up. Next on the podcast is Cole Thompson. Cole is a black and white photographer who is known for his approach to photography, known as photographic celibacy. We explore that topic in depth, as well as many other really interesting perspectives that Cole brings to the table. We also have Eric Bennett coming back onto the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, which looks to be quite incredible. I also recorded with Nikolai Alexander. He's an interior designer living in Denver, and we discussed a lot of topics relevant to photographers and how photographers can best partner with other artists. Well, if you haven't heard, I'm relaunching my YouTube channel and just released my first vlog, which was a lot of fun and I hope to uh, improve upon from here. I've been recording a ton of videos in the field relating to my experience as a photographer uh, and I'm doing a lot of stuff on backpacking and mountain climbing and just it's kind of more just a raw showcase of what I'm thinking and feeling in the field and uh, hopefully as I grow you can grow so tune into that Um, check it out just go over to YouTube and subscribe or look for the show notes for a link Well, do you have an idea on how to collaborate with me here on the podcast? Leave me a DM on Instagram or send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.